Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, and revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful, creative people become well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? I don't remember the first time I met Food & Wine's executive wine editor, Ray Island person. There may have been some wine involved. I just know that once I did, my drinking life got so much more exciting and also confident. Everybody loves Ray, myself included, for a host of reasons, not the least of which is that he doesn't just know everything under the sun about wine and spirits. He's a born teacher and entertainer who genuinely wants people to discover the drinks they love without being intimidated. Ray has won or been nominated for every writing award on the planet because in addition to all that expertise, he is a gifted storyteller who cares so deeply about the people and places and traditions behind the bottles he's pouring. And that is exactly what his upcoming book is all about. I had such a delightful time talking with my friend and colleague about how a nerdy little bookworm from Texas became one of the world's great wine experts. Also, our shared disdain for Morrissey and what Taco Bell has to do with it all. Welcome to season one, episode 13 of Tinfoil Swans, Ray Isle and the Taco Bell Principle. We have known each other for a long time, but... I did not know you when you were 10 years old. And that is how I like to start out asking people, you know, sort of where were you with food and being a chef? But you're right about wine. At 10 years old, I was more of a chef than I was a wine guy, for sure, because I wasn't allowed to drink. I didn't grow up in any kind of wine drinking family. I grew up in Texas. I mean, it was not like I grew up on a ranch surrounded by cows. My dad was a professor of English. So I did at a relatively young age get a little bit interested in cooking, mostly because of a neighbor who lived next door with a friend of my mother's who would let me help in the kitchen. There were a lot of like generic peanut butter sandwiches and burritos in between <laughs> those years and ending up with food and wine. But the wine didn't come out of my childhood at all. The love of words did for sure. I read a ton. I read constantly. I read book after book after book after book. I don't know that I knew it that early that I wanted to be a writer, quote unquote, but I certainly loved reading and loved words and loved stories. And it probably by the time I was in, let's say, late junior high, early high school, I knew I wanted to write things. And so I was interested in, I mean, oh God, I read a ton of science fiction. I mean, heaps and heaps of science fiction. And then I read somewhat beyond that in terms of literary stuff, but not so much as a kid. You and I were discussing just earlier today because, hey, folks, I get to work with this man. It is truly one of the greatest joys of my career that I get to work with this fantastic man. And we were discussing earlier today, he had dropped a The Magician's Nephew reference into it. And so I was thinking that is why 
I liked ginger beer. I was so interested in it because it was something that it was completely foreign to me and Diggory drinking a quiet ginger beer in the attic. And I'm wondering for you in these books, were you picking up on the food? Were you picking up on the drinks as you're reading these things? Ginger beer was a mystery because I didn't know what ginger beer was either. And here's this eight-year-old or whatever he was drinking beer. I mean, how was I supposed to know that ginger beer didn't have alcohol in it? And so that was deeply mysterious. It was in the same realm as the Phantom Toll Booth for me, which I loved as a kid. I mean, as a kind of word drunk kid, I loved that book. But I grew up in Texas. I had no idea what a toll booth was. Literally no clue. We didn't have any toll roads. There were no toll booths. And so it's like, what's this cardboard toll booth thing he's building. And there was, as you may remember, there was no Google at the time to look it up. What was the curiosity like in your home for those kind of things, like for that looking up, for the citing the passage, for whatever it was? I certainly was curious. I mean, I think I got it as a gift in World Book Encyclopedia, which was an exciting gift, crazily enough. Nerd. I was a nerd. I was absolutely a nerd. <laughs> Who knew nerds were going to become cool at one point and take over the world as tech people? But at the time, yes, a nerd was not the best thing to be. But I was endlessly curious about stuff. And these passions manifest. And you've written a very large book. <laughs> I have written a very large book. Yes. And I am quite happy that I am done writing the very large book. The book is called The World in a Wine Glass and is out in November. It is available for pre-order. Soon it will be available for actual order. It is a look at wineries, winemakers, vignerons, whatever you want to call it, from around the world who are independent, so not corporately owned, who make wines that express the place they're from and who are working in ways that benefit the environment or at the very least don't damage it. So looking at sustainability and organics and biodynamics and regenerative farming and what the hell natural wine is and so on. <laughs> I very much wanted to write a book that was not to the wine business. It's not a super geek out technical book. It is meant to do what I do with wine, which is make people interested in it and invested in it and tell stories about it. For some reason in my head, maybe it's a misperception, maybe it's some buried bit of information. Were you a drama kid? I didn't do any acting until I got to college and I kind of fell into it as one does because there was, in my case, a girl I was interested in who was involved. In, and I realized that I actually quite enjoyed being on stage and in front of an audience. I also realized by the end of four years of doing it that it was not necessarily what I should do as a career. It's very interesting. I'm relatively good at being myself on a stage, meaning that I don't get stage fright. I enjoy interacting with an audience. I'm shameless enough that I like a camera pointed at me, that kind of thing. But playing other people is a different gift and I can kind of muddle along. But you start to realize if you do acting for a while, that there are people who have an extraordinary gift for descending into a role and becoming that person. I knew that I was better with writing things than I was with the acting at that level. And so I didn't pursue it past college, really. But of all the stage skills that you learn as just basic acting training are so incredibly helpful for public speaking and so incredibly helpful for doing any kind of TV and so incredibly helpful for teaching, which I did for a while. But it's also got to be a really good skill for being a wine seller also, which is a part of your career. Believe me, I definitely sold wine for a while. And sale is its own form of performance. The act of getting people to do what you want them to do, which is what sales is. It's a form of manipulation. I mean, you hope that it's because they like the product, but it's that classic thing. You're trying to get them to say yes to buying the thing from you. And there are some people who are remarkably good at it and some people who are like me who can kind of fake it along. I'm good at talking to people and I like talking to people. I knew what I was selling and what I was selling happened to be not bad, which is a big difference. But I don't have that kind of killer instinct that really good salespeople do. And 
I worked with people like that in the wine business who are terrific salespeople, but that's a different psychology than my brain, at least. I'm more interested in stories and things. And also you genuinely care about wine and the stories of all of this. When did that come into play? How did you get to the point where you felt like you had this entry into wine, maybe what is this transformative moment that made you think this was a path for you? Well, the first transformative moment is starting to like the stuff, which I was kind of interested in or whatever. But then a couple of things, essentially at one point I was living in, it always involves a relationship somewhere in there. I was living in DC in that relationship. I was working at a rare bookstore at the time, had gotten kind of a little bit interested in wine because when we met me and, and the girl, I was talking about. She had been working at a pretty nice restaurant in Providence, and I'd spent time there and tasted wines that I wouldn't have normally tasted. I was like, Ooh, this stuff's really good. So I got a little bit interested, and the job at the rare bookstore involved a lot of sitting and waiting for customers to walk in the door. <laughs> they didn't that often. And so I started reading just random stuff, some of which was about wine, got interested, started buying occasional bottles. And then what happened was I went out to dinner with my girlfriend and her father, and he had been to Napa for something and he bought a bottle for dinner. And I remember this very clearly. People talk about this with wine all the time. There's like that epiphanic moment of things changing. And he bought a bottle of 1984 Diamond Creek Volcanic Hill Cabernet Sauvignon. And I took a sip. I was like, this is really good. And then as this went on, it was that kind of thing where you're like, I should be paying attention to my girlfriend's father talking about whatever the hell he's talking about. But I'm really paying attention to this wine because this stuff is amazing. And it did that thing that great wines do, which is you get towards the end of the last glass because the bottle's empty and you've got like a quarter of an inch left in the glass and you're torn because it's so good. You want to drink it, but then it's going to be gone. And it's a really kind of piquant moment of like, I want to just savor this last little bit of it. And I walked away from that dinner thinking, that was amazing. That stuff is great. And that changed the interest level dramatically. And I started buying wine to see what it tastes like and so on and started looking for wines that would replicate that. Not just hedonistic pleasure, but kind of like fascination. And I mean, one, it tasted amazing, but two, there was kind of just like magic to it that I didn't know would affect me. So I started buying wine on my minimal rare bookstore budget. A lot of the great wines of the world, for sure, and even a lot of the really good wines of the world have gotten stratospherically more expensive than they used to, even taking into account inflation. So I could, for 20 bucks back then, I could buy a really, really good bottle of wine. And it wasn't necessarily Chateau Petrus, or it wasn't like First Growth Bordeaux, but it was serious legit wine. So I could spend my weekly burrito money. I should also say my girlfriend who I was living with was working, so she had an income that allowed my 20 bucks of wine. There was a little bit of bouncing around because we broke up, got together, broke up, got back together, broke up, got back together. It was one of those relationships. Super fun. <laughs> you know, nothing like breaking up seven times, you know. And then what happened was I got a writing fellowship out in the Bay Area, a thing called a Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. I should back up and state that the bookstore that I worked in in D.C. was owned by the novelist Larry McMurtry. Lonesome Dove. Yeah, Lonesome Dove, Terms of Endearment, who was a friend of my family because he had taught at Rice when my father was there and had been in grad school at Stanford when my father was there. If you watch the movie Terms of Endearment or read the book, the two kids, they're Deborah Winger's kids in the movie and main characters, Emma's kids in the book, are modeled on me and my brother. What? Wow. <laughs> I'm the older one who's the grouchy, unpleasant one, and my brother's like the young, cheerful, sunny one. It's like, Wait a minute. Were you grouchy and unpleasant? No. <laughs> it's totally unfair. Anyway, so McMurtry had been a Stegner fellow, which is why I thought to apply for the thing. He was an influence on my kind of early sense of what I might write, because I thought I would write fiction, obviously. What kind of writer did you want to be? So the joke when I got 
to Stanford among all the Stegner fellows who were there, some of whom have gone on to be quite good novelists and some of whom have disappeared, and one of whom has turned out to be a wine writer of all things. I didn't know as an unformed short story novelist person, I didn't really know what I wanted. I didn't have a driving thing I needed to express, which I think is one reason why I ended up switching to nonfiction and journalism and wine. I also began to realize I didn't want to be in academia. Even though I was on a fellowship at a really good school that was very prestigious, it was great to have it. It was kind of a growing awareness that for me, academia was a little too static. I kept my interest in wine going. I started buying wines out there, had split up with a girlfriend, more or less. The fifth time. I mean, both of us were probably at that point like, thank God. So I started buying wines and because I was close to wineries, I started to go tasting. And then I kind of thought, well, as long as I'm doing this, I might as well find out more about it. Maybe I can write something about it. Who knows what? So I started helping out at bottlings for very small wineries because one, people need help with the bottling truck coming and they need someone to put labels on all this stuff. Two, they pay you in wine. As a grad student, I couldn't afford a lot of wine. So if they work a day and get paid six bottles of 40 buck wine. Life was good. I found it kind of fascinating. At this point, I finished the fellowship and I was a lecturer at Stanford in creative writing. I switched my teaching schedule around so that I could work harvest during the fall and teach the rest of the year. I worked two harvests for a winery called Colola Chance, which at the time was up in the hills above San Francisco. It's since moved down to, to Gilroy. And at the end of that, I finished the lectureship. I'd done two harvests at a winery and I was like, I'm done with academia, I am going to be in the wine world in some context. I had no idea if the writing and the wine would come together. I just knew that I was going to get some kind of job in wine and keep trying to write and not be in the academic world. I do remember being in Stanford and the director of the program sitting in the office of the director of the program, which looked out over the quad and his sort of arch nemesis walked by out on the quad and he looked at me and said, wouldn't it be nice if he just died? <laughs> I thought... Get me out of this place. These people are freaking nuts, you know. And it's funny because the outside perception of it that those of us who are not steeped in wine culture are, as it is portrayed in movies, everybody seems like they live to intimidate you. Did you find any intimidation coming into this? Were you worried that you were going to encounter that? I ran into that early on when I was in D.C. I went to buy a bottle of wine. When I was just getting into wine at a store there, I wanted to buy Cabernet Sauvignon. And I said, I want maybe one that's not too tannic. The guy who was the clerk, who was probably four years older than me at most, you could just see the expression was like, this guy is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about in terms of tannins. You could see the sort of inward sigh of attitude and dismissiveness. And I just thought, if I'm going to do anything with wine, that's not it. I'm going to do the opposite, which is make people feel like they can ask any question about wine and feel good about it and not have that kind of pretentious exclusionary BS attached to it, which drives me bonkers. Wine can be as complex as you want it to be because there's a lot to know. You walk into a total wine and there's 600 bottles of Chardonnay and they go from $7.99 a bottle or $4.99 a bottle to $175 a bottle. And they're from all over the world and have got labels on them saying, this got 94 points, this got 95 points. If you walked into a grocery store and there were 600 kinds of chicken soup and they ranged in price from $1.99 to $75.99 and some of them were like, single chicken, single source soups, and some of them were lightly seasoned chicken soups, and some of them got 95 points from some unknown critic, you would look at the wall of chicken soup. You'd be like, I'm out of here. I'm not, I, I didn't want soup to begin with. Get me away from the soup. I'm stressful. We'll be back with more from Ray Isle after the break. Hey, folks, it's Hunter Lewis, editor-in-chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living and Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. 
This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with Ray Isle. I think that's why you're so good at what you do and why you have always been so good at this because you see the humanity in it and you know who you are so you don't need to hold it. Like this kind of gatekeeping happens in so many different things, whether it's cast iron or barbecue or bourbon. There's a weird thing with wine. We don't know what we like when it comes to wine because we don't grow up drinking it. You know if you like pickles on hamburgers. Some people like pickles on hamburgers. Some people don't. You don't question your judgment. You don't look at a pickle and go like, hmm. I just don't know whether I want that on a hamburger or not. Whereas people look at a Cabernet or, you know, a Chasselas from Switzerland or whatever, and they say, I don't know if I like it. I've never had it. It's as if all food was unfamiliar to us. And it was always a form of exploration. But a lot of people are daunted by that. And justifiably, you know, you run into foods and, and as the American palate and as the American food world has become radically more diverse in terms of culinary traditions and so on. You do run into things at restaurants that you never, ever grew up with. I mean, I remember very clearly the first time I had uni, and it was very much a dare. It was in textural issues with uni, growing up in Texas and eating a lot of whatever hamburgers. I had no context for what this would taste like or be like. And as sure enough, I put it in my mouth and was like, I definitely have no context for this. I happen to like uni, but it's as if everything that ended up on your plate all the time was that when it comes to wine. Because until you start learning about wine, it's all unknown. It's like, I don't know if I like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. What do you mean it tastes like green peppers? That's weird. It's a wine. There's no wonder people are daunted. At the same time, a little bit of knowledge in wine goes a huge way. You can know a few grapes and a few things you like, and you're good to go. It is fermented grape juice. That's it. (laughs) I mean, I sort of think just about anything I know about wine is something you taught me. (laughs) I think of some of these things. I like it when my favorite musicians talk about who their favorite bands are. You know I love The Cure. And Robert Smith is a tremendous champion of other bands and -and up-and-coming bands. Calvin Johnson from Beat Happening has always been great about this. And I follow those. And then there's Morrissey. Oh, Morrissey deserves no (laughs) wine. No wine for Morrissey. Morrissey deserves like room temperature tap water. But it's so frustrating because I love those albums so much. However, Johnny Marr deserves... Johnny Marr deserves everything. Actually, what would you want to pour for Johnny Marr? That's a fine question. Well, one, I don't know if he drinks. You never know. I think he's vegan. But I think the dude deserves champagne. Really great champagne. With all of these things, taste is used as a cudgel to beat other people with on a regular basis with this. But it can also really, again, like empower people. And you were saying knowing a few things, it can help in so many areas of your life. When did you get to the point of confidence or what were the circumstances when you did start writing about it, you started marrying this and you became an authority on it? One nice thing about wine is that it is inexhaustible as a subject. You never reach the level of perfect authority. So what happened was I was at Stanford on this fellowship, and then a couple things happened. Working at a winery during harvest, the first amazing thing I learned about wine that was applicable to writing about it was anybody who writes about wine should 
find a way to get this experience, which is the process of being around wine as it becomes wine, being around grapes as they become wine and what a tank of fermenting grapes smells like. You see these Pinot Noir grapes come in and several weeks later, you've more or less got wine. It may age for a couple of years, but it's wine. And you smell it along the way, everything from the fresh juice to the fermentation, the smell of fermentation to the way it gradually becomes wine. And that is a tremendously valuable lesson. And so I learned that. And then what happened was I moved. I thought I was going to stay in the Bay Area. I did two things. I met my now wife who was in New York. She had a quite good job in the arts world and seemed to think that leaving it to move to California to be with unemployed potential wine guy was possibly unwise. I really had no argument for that. And then Almost simultaneously, through a very random connection, I was offered a job working for an importer as a supplier rep in New York City, selling Dow's and Graham's port. But getting to that question of expertise, selling port didn't make me an expert. It made me an expert on where every single liquor store in New York City was, which was good. But it did give me the opportunity to go to what are referred to as trade tastings or wholesale or portfolio tastings, which is basically someone who imports a hundred different wineries, has a tasting for the trade where all representatives from all those wineries or some of the employees of the company are pouring tastes to restaurant buyers and retail buyers so that they can decide what they want to buy. However, if you happen to work in the business, I mean, I would be at the pouring port, but then one of my colleagues would spell me and you could go taste a hundred different wines from 20 different countries. It's a very good way to quickly indoctrinate yourself into a lot of wine styles. I still was freelancing and writing fiction and also writing some journalism, some profile pieces. I wrote a profile piece actually about Larry McMurtry for the Stanford Alumni Magazine. And Josh Green, who was the editor of Wine and Spirits, saw that and got in touch with me. And mostly it was about potentially to freelance for the magazine because he liked the story. And pretty quickly, he offered me an editorial job at Wine and Spirits. And that was another being in the right place at the right time. Didn't hurt that I'd written a story that was a nice profile by McMurtry. But the thing about Wine and Spirits, which we don't do at Food and Wine, but Wine and Spirits does is they rate hundreds and hundreds of hundred wines in every issue. To do that, you have to taste 10 times that many wines. So for five years, when we were tasting, which was, let's say, two weeks out of every month, we would taste 40 McLaren Vale Shirazes in the morning and 40 Barossa Shirazes in the afternoon and 40 Clare Valley Shirazes in the morning and 40 Western Australia Shirazes in the afternoon. And then we would move to New Zealand and do 40 New Zealand Pinot Noirs in the morning and 40 New Zealand Cabernet blends and Merlots and so on in the afternoon. And if you do that for five years across a whole lot of wines, you learn a ton about wine and you learn a ton about what wine tastes like. You learn a ton about what wine is. It was grad school in wine. I learned a fantastic amount. I just tasted and tasted and tasted and tasted in the context where the way we would do it is if we would get local sommeliers to be on a panel for the tasting. So yeah, there'd be five or six sommeliers like Bernie Sun from, at the time, John George, and all these people who are now been in the wine business in New York a long time. And it was a fab fabulous learning experience. I left after five years, partly because mechanical reasons, had a kid, needed better benefits. Food and Wine wanted to hire me. I kind of burned out my engines there and needed to do something a little bit different. I've always been interested in food, so I wanted to kind of combine the two I've always cooked. But this also hits on a thing that I appreciate about you and appreciate about actually my favorite people in the beverage world. It's knowledge coupled with humor. 
And you know my particular taste in these things. There's that humor and that through line that makes me feel like I am welcome into this. And that's something that you bring too. Is that something that has always been appreciated about you? Or did you feel like you needed to button up at some point when you come to food and wine? I mean, I never felt like I had to button up particularly. When I started Food and Wine, you start anywhere, you have to rein in your own style a little bit to fit the voice of the magazine. I mean, you know this from when we did, was it a blog? What was it? So for context, I used to work at CNN and run a section of it called Etocracy. And I would get raised columns, I think two weeks before they ran on foodandwine.com. And we were able to do things that maybe didn't work out in the context of the magazine, but worked incredibly well online. Yeah. And I was able to be much more my own personal voice, Food and Wine's voice was a little more controlled than it is now. But I've never felt like I had to edit down the humor too much to some degree. I mean, one of the crazy things is taking fermented grape juice, which is alcoholic and tastes great and making it not fun. Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. It's fun. By its nature, it's fun. Yes, it's also intellectually interesting and complex and has a cultural history going back, but it's also a ton of fun. When I opened up your book and I knew that it was going to have your voice in it and I knew that it was going to have your scholarship in it, I opened it up and I started to laugh. And I would like for you to explain Taco Bell in the context (laughs) of wine to people. I had a momentary hesitation about that analogy because I actually don't mind Taco Bell tacos. I love Taco Bell. There is a big difference between a Taco Bell taco and having a conscientious chef at a really good restaurant make a plate of food for you that is handcrafted and where the ingredients were selected for a reason because they're really great ingredients. I use the analogy of artisanal tacos. But the point is, a lot of wine is a corporate beverage product. It is made in hundreds of thousands of cases of at a time, 100,000 gallon tanks. Then the point I'm making is that in the book, Taco Bell taco is made I mean, there are millions of them made probably every day. They are not an artisanal product. They are a corporate product that has been designed, specifically designed like all fast food by people with very advanced degrees to taste really good to you. And so the book I wrote is not about the Taco Bell tacos of wine. It is about wines that are made by actual people who know the land that they're working on and care about the grapes they're growing and are invested in the process of turning it into wine. You can look at a wine and ask it the question, who made it, how did they make it, and why did they make it that way? That's really important. And if you look at most of your generic sort of supermarket or 150,000, 250,000, 300,000 case wines was made by a marketing committee, it doesn't mean it tastes bad. Tastes, you can make something that is, in a sense, utterly artificial in some ways that tastes fantastic. We all know this. And that's kind of the point I'm making. There's a pleasure or a joy or a deepening of experience that you can get out of drinking wine that is made by real people from a real place in a way that is expresses that place. But it's kind of funny. You know, it's like it's the same time. Talk about tacos tastes good. Sure. They are bags of meat come from somewhere. There's hundreds of thousands of shells. Lots of meat goes in the shells. Lettuce is sprinkled on top and it's shoved at you through a window. You know, that's a lot of wine in the world, realistically. So I wanted to write about that the other wine. I don't mean this as an attack on people who want to drink mass market wine or people who want to eat Taco Bell tacos. I happily drive past a Taco Bell now and then I'm going to feel like, I don't know, Taco Bell taco. But I think if you are interested in wine, there is a kind of wine out there that offers more than that. You learn my wine by drinking it. And as your level of knowledge deepens, your appreciation deepens. If you look at the percentages, the vast majority of wine that's sold is fairly generic. It used to be generic and bad, like in the 19, early 70s or whatever. It's all made very well now. It's all processed beautifully and it tastes fine, but it's not interesting. It's more important to me that a wine has personality than that it's perfect. 
it needs to express something that's real rather than just be a kind of perfectly made shell. I like the flaws in things. I mean, that's what gives a rocket sparkle. Yeah. I mean, humans are interesting because they're not perfect. I mean, if you want perfect, I guess chat GPT is on the way. I think we are interesting in our imperfections. It's the classic thing they say about beauty, that beauty is not perfection. Beauty, like the people who are most beautiful are often somewhat off of what you would expect beauty to be. So on a practical sense, how should people approach using this book? Oh, well, they should approach it first by buying it. That's the best way to approach using the book. I heartily recommend it. But the other way is that the part of the book where I talk about why this book is what it is and who these people are who are in it, it's an important part of the book, but it's fairly short in the overall scheme of things. And the vast majority of the book are individual profiles of wine wineries, winemakers, vignerons around the world who are making wines in this way with recommended wines. And so it's meant as a statement on some level, but it's very much meant as a guide. And it's meant as a useful guide to just give you stuff to look for in stores. It's not meant to be all theoretical. It's, in fact, extremely practical. And so there are a couple of filters on who's in the book. I mean, one, obviously, the basic philosophical approach, but two, almost all the wines in the book are under $100. I didn't want to write a book about super hyper expensive burgundies that only the very rich can afford. It's not what I do, and it's not really what I'm interested in. I say it somewhere in the book that you can spend your entire life drinking wines that cost under hundred bucks, under 75 bucks and have an amazing experience of drinking wine. But it's meant to be fun to read. And it's also meant to be interesting. And it's also meant to be useful to actually be something that gives you wines you can go out to buy that you will at least find interesting and probably really like. What is the single best drinking moment that you had in the course of creating this book? One of the best moments was before I actually knew that this was the book I was going to do, but it's material that definitely went into the book, which was when I went with Pascaline Lepeltier, who's a master sommelier and runs a wonderful restaurant, Chambers, here in New York. I did a profile piece on her. We drove through the Loire together, visiting winemakers that she's particularly fond of and thinks are wonderful. And Pascaline's from the Loire. And it was, one, she's a friend. Two, she's an encyclopedic knowledge of the Loire Valley. So I learned a vast amount. But there was a moment where we were at a winery and we'd gone back into the caves and the woman who was the winemaker, Domaine de Chevalier, said, wait, she poured us an older, much older bottle of their wine. She said, wait. And it's actually literally a cave. The cellar of the winery goes back into a kind of cave system. And she turned out the lights and it was pitch black. And she said, when I was a teenager, you would come down here and you would drink wine in the total dark. And it was sort of towards the end of this trip. And we just sat there in the silence drinking this wine. And it was a really magical moment, not to be repeated because very tragically, she passed away a couple of years later. That trip and those winemakers inform the book in a way. That's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in in wine. I did an interview with David Hirsch for the book, who has Hirsch Vineyard in California. We sat down and talked for two or three hours. And he's just so interesting because he is a farmer who's a very intellectual farmer who was in a tractor accident five years ago. So and is now in a wheelchair. And he's still intensely passionate about what he does. He is still the farmer on the property. And he's a wonderful thinker about wine. We were drinking a Burgundy that it was from his cellar while we talked, that bottle of wine, but that conversation, for me, it's always context. It's, you know, the wines that matter are the ones that are in a context. It's such a pleasure to be around someone who thinks so deeply, makes such wonderful wines, and drinking wine together. So those are the wines that really linger and matter in memory, I think. You're making me think of that Frank O'Hara poem, Having a Coke With You. Yeah, Coca-Cola can be a meaningful thing if you're having it with the right person at the right moment. It's a crucial aspect of wine, but there are those moments that are just kind of transcendent and or meaningful. And there were a lot of those in writing this book because I was meeting a lot of people who are fascinating. I was tasting wines that I 
care about. And I was funneling that into this project. So I think what you're doing, though, is giving people a passport for their own to happen here as well and giving them the courage and empowering them to do it. And I guess I want to know then, do you have sort of a holy grail combination of the wine you'd want to be drinking when you, you know, obviously you want to be with the loved ones who you know and all these things. Is there a dream person who you would want to share a particular bottle of wine with? I think the person I would like to share a bottle of wine with, particularly in the context of this book, would be my father. I didn't manage to publish a book before he passed away. He was a professor and he was a reader for sure. And he's the one who created my love of reading. And we did take one trip through Texas wine country together, which was, I lingers in memory as a really wonderful few days. But I would have very much liked for him to have you know, to sort of sit down with him and had a glass of something that's in this book and been able to show him that I'd written this book. So that'd be the person. I mean, for sure. If I had to pick a non-related person who's really famous, I really like Ingrid Bergman. Also, I've become friends with Kyle McLaughlin, who makes wine. And Kyle got into wine because of David Lynch, the film director. And I would actually be quite interested to have a glass of wine with David Lynch. I don't know what would amount, what would it be like, but Kyle has flown the possibility by before. So that would be pretty amazing. I don't admit this often in the outside world. I turned an entire room of my house into the Black Lodge from Twin Peaks. I know this. <laughs> I feel like this needs to happen for you and David Lynch. <laughs> We're speaking this into the universe. I mean, it's a little more like than Ingrid Berberian, I think. <laughs> and sadly, more likely than my dad, who has passed away. But, you know. How would he not be so proud of you? You educate people. You teach them how to have an incredible time. You empower them to seek out their pleasure. And you have written this extraordinary book that everybody needs to buy and also makes a great holiday gift. Thank you. Yes, The World in a Wine Glass. It's available for pre-order. It's available <laughs> soon for order order. It's useful as a doorstop if you don't ever get around to reading it. <laughs> it's good for holding up your computers when you're recording a podcast. It's very good for that. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being an amazing colleague always. And I cannot emphasize this enough to folks. Go out and get this book. Make your life richer in all the ways. You'll have the wine. You'll have raised words in your head. And that's a damn good time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Ray Isle. And also thank you for listening to this whole season. This is our final episode of season one. And I have had an absolute blast with this. If you maybe want to hear some more of this for a second season, it would really help us so much if you would leave stars and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Send it to a friend. I don't know. Listen 25 times in a row. Whatever it is you need to do because it's a pleasure and a privilege to get to do this podcast every week. And especially so with this incredible production team. It is Lottie Le Marie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. If you want to get caught up on this season, you can go to foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. Stay well.